Welcome to Manufacturing Matters, a podcast sponsored by Simsbury Bank. My name is Martin Geitz. I'm president and CEO of Simsbury Bank. Welcome to this edition of Manufacturing Matters. Today, we're going to focus on growing your manufacturing business, and we're going to focus in particular on growing domestically as well as internationally and all the things uh, that you need to think about in that area. I'm joined today by Wendy Ulasic, who is a UConn adjunct professor and clinical psychology PhD with a specialization in family systems and organizational behavior. Dave Brown, area loan specialist, rural development with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Bill Tierney, Lender Relations Specialist, Veterans Officer, and Project Officer with the U.S. Small Business Administration. Tony Sargis, Senior International Trade Specialist with the U.S. Department of Commerce. And Joe Raycraft, Vice President and Senior Relationship Manager at Simsbury Bank. So the economy is growing again, and, in, and the manufacturing economy in Connecticut is growing very nicely. In the last year, we've added 4,500 manufacturing jobs, and manufacturing now accounts for 11% of private employment in the state. With uh, these kind of positive growth trends, it seems to be a very good time to begin to think about growing your, uh, continuing to grow your business. But as an organization considering to grow your business, what are some of the important factors that you need to consider? Bill. Um, one thing is to have a plan. Businesses don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. So one of the most important things that a small business owner needs to be paying attention to is their roadmap or their business plan. Another important factor would be make sure you have the proper access to capital. Um, SBA is a guarantor of loans. We work with all the major banks in the state. But a small business needs to make sure that they have the proper access to capital, whether it's a line of credit, a letter of credit, if they're considering exporting, or uh, if they're going to be exporting, maybe looking at uh, getting some uh, export uh, insurance to uh, protect themselves and their lender. Excellent. Dave, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think that you've got to be able to brand yourself. If you don't have a brand, people won't remember you. Uh, if you're going to compete strictly on price, you're going to surely fail. Uh, so you got to seek a, um, a business product or service uh, that has a quality, uh, you know, to it that people are going to have, you know, reason to speak with each other. Word of mouth, you know, is the best form of advertising. Excellent. Wendy, are there things that family-owned businesses in particular ought to think about as they think about growing more quickly? Absolutely. As Bill said, it's important to have a business plan, but it's also important to have a plan for the family. So Yvonne Landsberg and I are doing research now on a concept called ambidextrous leadership. It's important for people uh, in growing family businesses to tend to the needs of both the family and the business simultaneously. So you're looking at the emotional assets while you're uh, ascertaining your financial ones. Excellent. Um, so fast growth can often lead to challenges with quality. Dave, any thoughts on how you can grow quickly without sacrificing quality? That's a great question. And um, what I ever, always tell everybody is revenue does not equal success. You got to be able to manage your cash flow such that you're not going to get your uh, sales out ahead of you. So therefore, you should keep a constant eye on your balance sheet. If you can keep a 20% uh, net equity as a percentage of your total asset at all times, I think you're headed in the right direction. You know, Wendy, sometimes uh, growth can also lead to change, and change is sometimes more difficult for some people to handle than others. In a family business, are there any uh, dynamics that come into play when you're experiencing a lot of change in your family business? 
Yes. Um, it's very important to understand what the tolerance for risk is amongst the family shareholders and family owners. It's important to create alignment of values, understand the family values, and that can often help um, lead the business forward when you're considering these family factors. It's also important to have forums by which voices can be heard, such as a family council, setting up a governance structure, and having a family employment policy when you're when you're capitalizing and assessing human resources within the family and non-family member executives who can um, go ahead and, and support the growth of the family business. Wendy, I, you know, in talking about that theme, as, as you've looked at family businesses who have managed growth, are there other challenges that family businesses might want to be aware of? I think that issue of the tolerance for risk is key and also um, making sure that there's f- fidelity to the family values. For example, there was a family member who was sitting on a board and she had been working in the family foundation. And when she realized that the family was thinking of expanding into a vending operation of tobacco products, they decided not to um, expand in that direction. Due to a history, a family history of uh, lung cancer. So the idea of understanding what the family values are and how that directs the business expansion is important. Very interesting. Bill, as you've worked with uh, faster growing manufacturing companies and uh, privately held businesses, uh, what kinds of things have you seen that uh, can often create challenges for them? Uh, One of the things is infighting amongst the owners. Uh, They have to make sure that they have the the proper plan in place and that they're all in agreement of what, you know, what the the lead is going forward and who is the lead. And everybody uh, actually has to have an important role in that growth, whether they're going to grow internally or externally. There has to be a constant decision made. Um, Make sure that they have the capacity to take on that additional growth, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, domestically or internationally. Make sure you have a, a mentor or a partner that's going to help you uh, weed, through, weed through the uh, all the information that you're going to have to digest. And then, you know, you have a proper planning in place so that you're not faced with a, a gauntlet of, of challenges uh, on the front side, that these things are already forethought and planned out. Uh, for example, we work with the Small Business Development Center, one of our great partners, and SCORE as well. Um, these, these folks can provide counseling and uh, their expertise in uh, business finance and in business in general uh, to help these uh, small business owners get to the next level without facing these challenges. Let's shift a little bit to uh, export opportunities, international trade opportunities. Tony, what sort of resources are available for uh, businesses to avail themselves for finding a way to get their products into the export market? The two main uh, resources in Connecticut are my organization, the U.S. Commercial Service, and the U.S. Commercial Service office in Connecticut is located out of Middletown, and we cover the entire state. Uh, we have offices in over 75 different countries and embassies and consulates all over the world. The other resource in the state of Connecticut is the Small Business Development Center, who primarily work with new-to-export companies. Joe, um, are, there, are there regulatory concerns that come into play when, uh, when, when businesses are looking to sell to uh, other companies in other countries? Are there areas, things that they need to be prepared to uh, uh, deal with? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, every country is going to be different. Each one's going to have their own kind of regulatory requirements. But there's things to think about would be, you know, local product registration. Is that a requirement in a local country? Are there intellectual property rights you need to be concerned about? Or, you know, import-export restrictions on certain types of products. Uh, there's custom duties, um, 
you know, tariffs on imports. So there's lots of, you know, different things that a company would need to look at. And, you know, in terms of resources, I've always found from, from my background, uh, the U.S. Commerce Department is, is excellent in, in providing small companies with access to incredible amounts of information and experts. Um, you know, one of the things that I've found internationally is what they can do is hook you up literally with people in the U.S. embassies within the market that you want to tap. And you can talk directly to their political people, their economic people, and really get a good sense of what are the regulatory things you need to worry about. And, and beyond that, there's, there's human resource issues. How do you hire? How do you fire? So lots of, lots of things that a company needs to, um, to think about as they, as they go to the international market. Bill, how, uh, how does a small business administration support companies that want to be in the international trade? Are there special programs that you have? Yes, actually, uh, we work with the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, assistant, U.S. Export Assistance Center. Um, SBA actually has um, export uh, programs such as uh, our international trade loans. We have our uh, Export Express loans, which go up to $500,000, which could be a line of credit or it could be a term loan to, or it could be a line of credit which supports a, a letter of credit. We have the Export Working Capital Program, which goes up to $5 million. Um, we also have uh, the International Trade Program, where uh, it funds uh, domestic operations. Um, we also have a, we work with the DECD. We provide them with grant money every year, uh, where a small business owner get, can get up to $7,500 to fund an overseas visit to attend a, uh, different trade shows. It could be to translate their information into a different language. It could be to translate their, inf their uh, marketing information or translate their websites as well. Um, SBA has a team of experts that uh, work with the Small Business Development Center, and they're housed in our office as well, uh, that work with customers every day on how to you know, bring these companies uh, the, you know, to, to the export markets. Connecticut, although it's a relatively small state, is among the, uh, the biggest exporting states in the country, uh, thanks to the aerospace industry and, and other industries that we have here. Um, if an organization, Tony, is considering international growth, what are some of the important factors for them to consider in, in, in advance? I think some of the factors we discussed earlier, what I see is the most important is management buy-in. Are the, the is the C-suite or the management of that company going to buy into international growth? Are they willing to spend the time? Are they are they willing to wait one year, two years, three years, five years for that sales cycle to turn around where they can actually make an export sale? Export sales are not going to happen overnight, and that's just a reality. You know, I tell the clients it's really the long game, especially if they're dealing with some type of component manufacturer that they're selling to a prime and tier one overseas. It's going to be the long game. It's going to take you a while to get that income coming in. So you really need management buy-in uh, and the time and investment that it's going to take to get you to those overseas markets. How do you, how, how do, how do, uh, how does a Connecticut business find the, uh, you know, find the, the network in another country to engage uh, in, in, uh, uh, to engage in international sales? How do you find the, the potential buyers? How do you, Network so there. we start with our clients with what we call an international expansion blueprint. So we really want to start with the bare minimum working with them so they understand every element of the export process, whether it be export documentation, export compliance, those trade barriers that might pop up if they're duties and taxes or certifications they may need. And then what we're going to want to do is once we understand that for various markets around the world, we're going to want to narrow that down to a short list. 
Um, there are some clients that come in and they're sole focused on an individual market, whether it be Canada, Mexico, China, whatever it might be. But a lot of companies come in and they have a regional approach. So they're looking at an area of the world, say Asia or South America, and they really want to understand what the opportunities are there. And that's where kind of our embassy and consulates come in that Joe mentioned. Leveraging that relationship that we have at the embassies and consulates, specialists that cover sectors such as aerospace, defense, marine tech, environmental technologies, energy, education, franchising, et cetera, we're really able to tap in the up-to-date knowledge of that market and what the opportunities currently are. We're in a day and age where things change constantly. So we can do a lot of upfront market research and market gathering, market intelligence, but we really need to understand what the up-to-date realities are in that market. And can we meet the objectives of that client and can we connect them with the right people? Uh, Dave, uh, in your experience with uh, companies that have uh, grown internationally, what are some of the important factors that you've seen that have contributed to their success? Well, and. On the front of trade policy, I think that you have to uh, look at whether it's going to be a bilateral or multilateral trade agreement, um, working with the World Trade Organization in terms of what uh, notifications they're putting out, and also analyzing the policies and regulations of their trading partners. I think those are three of the key areas that I've seen that uh, international businesses have used. So good preparation in advance. Absolutely. So let's think about this also in terms of challenges or maybe unexpected challenges that businesses may face as they try to do business internationally. Uh, Wendy, are there things, uh, particularly with family-owned businesses, that uh, that may come into play that uh, or could be challenges? Yes, when Tony man when Tony mentioned management buy-in, my mind went immediately to shareholder buy-in, um, and that patient capital that we often find within family businesses and the the focus on the long-term horizon for the future generations. So often that can be tapped as um, a, a support for growth for the family business. Um, there's oftentimes intergenerational conflict that can occur. Uh, so sometimes the rising generation members have a desire to move more quickly than the older generations. And oftentimes we find when you work on communication, once again, within that forum of a family council or family meetings, that you can come to a better understanding of one another's pace and risk tolerance um, this can often happen within branches as well of the family. So it's important to tend to those emotional assets as well as the economic ones. Bill, um, language barriers. Have you seen in working with your customers, uh, how do they deal with different languages? Uh, that's a good question. Um, they have to understand the culture of the con- country that they're doing business with first and foremost. Businesses can hire translators and the like, but they, they really need to understand the, the customs and the policies and the people that they're dealing with because people are people, and that does not change. While well, languages may change, people under, overall are the same all over the place. So bottom line is you have to understand the, cult- the culture and your client first and foremost. Uh, Joe, uh, from a funding point of view, capital uh, uh, raising and, and uh, funding expansion – uh, what are some of the challenges that uh, companies may face or barriers that companies may face in in uh, getting adequate funding growth? Yeah, as companies go international, funding does become a little more um, complex, um, as, as many small companies here in Connecticut know. Uh, when you've got export receivables on your balance sheet, a lot of times banks don't want to give you credit for those. So it's hard to get funding for any type of international um, receivables. But there are products out there that that can um, mitigate 
that uh, that risk to the company. And Bill talked about the SBA. They've got the export working capital line of credit. Um, there's private insurance out there that where you can insure your, your export receivables. So there are other sources out there. And I think Bill mentioned, you know, there's, there's teams of experts in, in these areas um, where there's other sources through the government, whether it be through the USDA, that can help support a, a, an international expansion here domestically, where you may need the capacity to build it. The USDA can, can finance that. If you're looking for financing in the international market, um, let's say, for example, your, your target market is Mexico and you're a Connecticut manufacturer, you could sell your capital equipment to companies in Mexico and utilize programs like the Export-Import Bank that are there to help support U.S. exports and U.S. jobs. So what they can help do is they can help finance the overseas buyer of that Connecticut-made equipment. So there's, there's other sources of financing out there, maybe not through you know, the, the, the local community banks. Um, we can certainly connect um, companies with um, the sources like um, SBA or USDA or Exim Bank or, or other government agencies that support that type of business. Tony, does the uh, Department of Commerce uh, also play a role or do you have resources to support uh, capital needs that businesses may uh, may need? We don't work with export financing other than some general counseling. We typically will refer our clients to the SBA or Exim Bank or even a local uh, banking institution. Interesting. How about transportation? Um, is is that an area, Tony, where the yeah. Department of Commerce can be helpful? So every year we run an export documentation seminar, and typically it is a full house. And we talk a lot about like the documentation mechanisms that need to be done. If it's the, as basic as an HS code that needs to be on your commercial invoice, and all those little details that need to be there, but. Companies need to realize that their transportation carrier is an extension of their company, and they should have a point of contact locally that they can work with with any issues that arise within their transportation needs. Uh, They are paying them to transport those goods overseas, so they should have a relationship with them. But we do typically get a lot of questions on documentation requirements if it's a NAFTA certificate of origin or any type of free trade agreement certificate of origin or if it's even qualifying their product for an export shipment. So I think there's a lot of documentation needs on the transportation portion of it and also the export compliance needs of these companies that they need to realize that they have to follow U.S. government rules and regulations when they're exporting overseas. Dave, is, uh, is political risk something that companies should be aware of as, as they do business in other countries? No, never. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just turn on your radio. You hear all about that. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, a very um, timely question. Uh, and political, I equate that with country risk. And, um, you know, since that changes literally uh, by the day, by the moment, one of the sources that I always consult is called the United States Trade Representative. And if you go online to USTR, they have a whole area devoted to specifically to I- issues of international trade. So uh, whenever I get <clears throat> a question that's specific to one area or one industry to the other, I always go on there and I, I, and I look for what's current. You know, related to country risk, uh, another element of country risk I would think would be that other countries have different legal systems and have different taxing systems. Joe, any uh, comments on that that uh, companies ought to be aware of? Yeah, as we talked about before, there's you know there's regulatory uh, risk for companies as they go into the international market, and you know my 
kind of advice would be, you know, talk to your existing attorneys and CPAs. Uh, even though they're Connecticut-based, many of these companies are tied in with international affiliations. So you can be tied in very quickly to uh, an attorney in, in the target market you want to go to or or even a CPA that can help you unravel the, you know, any tax or, or legal issues. And I've noted that um, many of the international accounting firms – um, even not just the big four, but you know, even the 15 or 20, they all have international affiliations with hundreds of offices all over the world, and many of them have um, you know, country-specific guides to you know, tax, legal issues, and even operational issues within the country. So um, again, lots of good resources out there. Tony, for a company that's looking to do business in another country, uh, you know, they probably want to do some have some knowledge about how their product is going to compete against local providers of of a similar product. Do you have resources to help uh, help a company to assess the competitive environment that they might face in another country? Absolutely. So, I mean, we will work with our staff overseas at the embassy and consulate. And one of the things, a part of our market research, that we're always going to take a look at. Their competitors in that market and around the world, and also complementary products that are maybe served in that market. I think when you're looking at uh, local competition, one of the things that it comes down to a lot of times is, is that product being protected in that market? So in importing a similar product the duties and taxes can be a lot higher. So that's a part of our market research. We're going to look at duties and taxes on the front end of things before we get too far and invest a lot of time into a market because the duties and taxes can be increased by a country based on them trying to protect a certain industry. Tariffs. My goodness. What a unique thought. So uh, as the economy continues to evolve and uh, technology plays an ever more important role in, uh, in everything that we do in, in the economy, is that helping or hurting small and medium-sized businesses as, as they try to compete internationally? So over the last couple of years, the, the Commerce Department launched the e-commerce innovation lab, and we've really had a huge focus on companies developing a digital strategy. And for our office over the last about 18 months, we've been doing website globalization reviews for a lot of small to medium-sized businesses. We've conducted about 40 of them. And we really want to get them in a sense where their website is globalized, so a general globalized website, saying that they're open for international business, making sure that their forms on their website aren't geared just towards the U.S. audience. You know, one of the examples we always talk about when we're looking at a website is, do you know what ZIP stands for? Everyone's a ZIP. We've been looking at ZIP, ZIP code for years. No one knows what it even means. So is somebody in Argentina or China going to know what ZIP means? It means zone improvement plan. So we need to think about all these things on our website, saying we're open for international business, showing what trade shows we're going to on our homepage. Where are we going to be at that trade show? What booth are we located at? Can they visit somebody at your booth? So make that information available on your website. It's for the world to see. It's it's public information. It's out there. So make sure you're showing that you have a, a global presence. You know, one of the things that I would think any uh, international buyer of a product produced by a Connecticut manufacturer would be concerned about would be the ability of that manufacturer to support and service that product. Wendy, any thoughts about um, how companies need to be prepared to support the servicing needs of the product that they're selling overseas? I think, as as Bill mentioned earlier, it's always important to understand the cultural uh, implications of any country that you're you're going to do business in. Um, one of the things I recommend is for companies to do a walkthrough. So see what that 
customer experiences from the first call to the delay in, in getting receiving the service and and seeing what some of those cultural norms are, um, understanding how to grow a sense of trust, communication, what is the authority decision-making that's occurring in these different countries, and understanding, uh, for example, compensation and how is that dealt with with your employees overseas. Um, so all of these issues have to do with language and culture and trust and, and understanding um, how best to service your, your customer and clients. Uh, Tony, Dave, and Bill, anybody have any additional thoughts on the importance of being able to service uh, your client when they're overseas? I think one of the things, you know, we see see a great deal, deal of is we see companies that are selling a product or service overseas and they may have a repair and warranty item and they need to understand that you're not that repair and warranties maybe not going to Massachusetts or California. Now you have that export shipment that's coming in and out of a country. So you have to think about how you're going to deal with uh, repairs and warranties. I think that's a really important thing to consider when you're doing business overseas. Yeah, if I can jump in, I would also say, you know, the hours of operation. You know, we're used to, you know, East Coast time here. And if you're, you know, doing business in Europe, how are you going to deal with that? Are you going to have a, a second shift um, so those are important kind of customer service issues that, that need to be addressed and kind of, you know, tie into, you know, Wendy's point on culture and, and, and people and, and the company's commitment to, you know, international business. Do they have the right people? And, you know, are they able to, to deliver the product that they deliver here in Connecticut with the same quality and the same service? How about supply chain management? Does that change when you begin to do business internationally? Tony? I think when you're dealing with – I don't work with a ton of component manufacturers as much as some of my colleagues do. But I think when you're dealing with these primes and tier ones, tier twos, tier threes overseas, there are going to be different requirements on you. I think there's probably some similarity of what the OEMs and primes here expect from you for certifications. But you really need to investigate when you're going to be a supplier for those companies. What are the needs of that international uh, supplier and you know how do you fulfill those needs? There's something called the Trade Adjustment Assistance uh, Program, and uh, how can that help uh, manufacturers? So the New England Trade and Adjustment Assistance Center uh, in the Northeast is located out of uh, Massachusetts. And what they primarily do is they help companies that are negatively impacted by import trade. Um, so it, if, it's affecting their, uh, if it's affecting their sales or job growth, uh, that organization assists with some grants along those lines. I think for folks that are, if are interested in getting in touch with them, I believe it's netac.org is the website. Excellent. That'll be something that people ought to look into. So as we come to the close of this, uh, have we missed anything here in terms of international trade or focus on manufacturing and family-owned businesses and the impact of all this? Anybody have anything else to, they wanted to add today? I think just one of the other programs that Bill briefly mentioned earlier, that STEP grant program that's available for, for Connecticut companies that's ran out of the, uh, the Connecticut Department of Economic Community Development Office. I think it's a really valuable resource for companies to consider. It's, I think, about $7,500, right, Bill, uh, that they can get for trade shows. They can also use it for some of our matchmaking services as well if they're looking to get in touch with a uh, distributor or rep overseas or even if they're looking to vet an international partner. And there's a lot of other things you can use it for. So I think I think companies out there should really consider looking at that step grant funding and, and apply for it. Great. Well, this has been uh, very illuminating in terms of the things that uh, all of your advice about 
uh, things that family-owned businesses and privately-owned businesses should be considering when looking to expand their business both domestically and internationally. Very exciting. And the great thing is that there are wonderful resources here, right here in the state of Connecticut, both through our government agencies as well as consultants to uh, help help businesses think through all the challenges and plan very well in advance. So I'd like to thank you all for joining us today and thank the uh, thank you all who are listening to this episode of Manufacturing Matters. 